Now, the AI has run a, compa uh, a campaign. Uh, I think it's aimed both at industry, but primarily at consumers, which is, is it your car, your data, your choice. That's right. Um, what did we learn from that campaign? And uh, what was the uptake of that? Well, first of all, uh, to your point, this was a campaign both to mobilize the industry and consumers to the issue of a right to repair. The Your Car, You Did All Your Choice campaign was actually an initiative from sister associations in the U.S., uh, namely Auto Care Association and AASA, the uh, Aftermarket Supplier Association. And so we created this North American campaign uh, to really focus the attention of government on the need to legislate on the right to repair. Um, we had a, um, a petition that was launched. Uh, we collected over 45,000 signatures from Canadians and really draw the attention of, of Minister Champagne. Now, unfortunately, the timing of our campaign wasn't great. It just came at the end of the previous federal government. And so the bill that was tabled uh, in the House that we thought at the time would be the best vehicle to push for right to repair uh, died uh, because of the, um, the government going an election. But we have since come back uh, with the new government and continue to uh, advocate uh, as I mentioned earlier, C-244 is in the House and we believe will become law. And there's other bills also. Um, I will add to that. Uh, uh, likewise, our American partners have done great, great uh, movement. There's already a bill that was adopted as a resolution of a, a referendum in uh, Massachusetts in uh, 2020. But there's also now the Repair Act that is in Congress at the federal level which specifically, again, uh, builds on the case of consumer right to choose and maintaining a competitive marketplace. And that has bipartisan support. Now, uh, you know, U.S. politics is complicated. I'm not sure how far along they're going to go, but it's sure, you know, drawing a lot of attractions right now. And likewise, here in Canada, getting more and more attentions from the federal government. Yeah, that is, it's, it's setting a precedent and setting models over which we could learn from it as well. Because we definitely, this is an issue that we need to tackle. That's right. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of, at stake there. Hello, EV friends, and welcome. Joining me on today's podcast is J.F. Champagne. J.F. Champagne is a highly effective association leader and technological visionary with a focus on ensuring that organizations thrive in the digital age. He represents the interest of the automotive aftermarket in the role of president of the Automotive Industries Association of Canada. He is an automotive aftermarket representative on the Canadian Automobile Service Information Standard Task Force, the Canadian Automobile Partnership Council, the Automotive Business School of Canada at Georgian College, and the Automotive Service Labor Sector Council in Quebec. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Ken. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. So for our audience who really is not familiar with the Automotive Industries Association, I thought uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what it is you do and who you represent. Uh, and then I'd like to get into one of your main issues, uh, which has been of, uh, late, and that is the um, right to repair. And then you can explain a little bit about that and why we should even care about it. Absolutely. Well, first off, the Automotive Industries Association of Canada is the association, national association that regroups uh, the entire ecosystem of the automotive aftermarket. Uh, we've been around for 80 years. 
I wasn't around 80 years ago, but uh, we've been around 80 years and, uh, and you know, represents uh, the, the, the manufacturers of aftermarket replacement parks, um, the distribution outlets that provides all of the parts to the automotive aftermarket, uh, the retailers, the frontline retailers, as well as representing people in the collision sector uh, of the aftermarket as well. So we're coast to coast. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, one of the core focus of our, our associations over the years has been to advocate for for right to repair. And uh, as you know, Ken, this, this is increasingly more of a, uh, I call it a, a, a common topic uh, in everyday conversations for sure. Yeah. So well, sort of briefly explain what is right to repair and why should consumers and even industry even really care about this? Sure. So... Essentially, right to repair is the consumer's right to choose where and how they get their car serviced or repaired. Fundamentally, is to ensure that you as a consumer have a choice to uh, take your vehicle to the, um, the dealership who sold you the vehicle, uh, maybe another dealership who services uh, that brand or other brands of vehicle, or a local aftermarket shop uh, that you have confidence in. And fundamentally, Right to Repair says that whomever you go to to get your car service should be able to have access to the parts, the information, the resources, and the training needed so they could effectively, cost-effectively, and safely repair your car. Right. So we mentioned that when I was reading out your bio uh, about the uh, cases of the Automotive uh, uh, Services Task Force, uh, that you serve on. Uh, so explain a little bit about what that is, what its function is, and really some of the problems and challenges now with that model. Sure. You know, I often ask the, the question when I present in front of audiences, is so, so do you think that right to repair is legislated? Do you think there is a law that ensures that we have right to repair uh, in Canada? And often people have the misconception that in fact it is legislated and by law you're protected and, you know, they're it's pretty safe, but the reality is not. Um, what we have in Canada for right to repair in the automotive sector is a voluntary agreement called CASIS. Uh, and that agreement was negotiated uh, back in 2009 between uh, the automakers or the association representing automakers and associations representing the aftermarket. And that agreement uh, is what to this day um, provides a framework to uh, uh, ensure that uh, the automotive aftermarket has access to those tools, those processes, uh, and that training that's needed to fix the cars. But um, the agreement dates back to 2009 at a time where uh, there was not much conversations about EVs. Uh, the cars were not what they are today. And it sure did not take into account uh, the whole aspect of telematics. And that is the technology that enables cars to be like our cell phones, essentially computers on wheels that's always connected to the internet. That's really what the, the new challenges are and that's driving the need for, you know, the next phase of cases that really looks at a, a, a new park of vehicle that's increasingly connected, electric, um, that we need to be able to service, you know, using the same principle right. of right to repair, ensuring that consumers have continued to have that right to choose. Right. So the AIA position is, or that you're advocating is, we need a legislative solution. The voluntary agreement perhaps worked in its day, but due to technology, it needs to evolve. 
Uh, so, I mean, of course, right to repair is even more than just automobiles. It involves the farm equipment, your cell phone. It's basically empowering that consumer to choose uh, their provider who's going to repair that uh, their product because essentially they own the, the product. What what would a legislative solution then look like? So, uh, and I want to go back a bit what you're saying. You know, for sure it extends to consumer goods. Um, and the fundamental premise that if I buy uh, a specific product, being an automobile, um, you know, something that I use on, on for farming, uh, my washing machine, you know, if you own the equipment, if you own the product, you you should be able to get someone to repair the various components, whether or not the auto, you know, the, the original manufacturers uh, are around to provide parts and service to to those parts, and. As the technology evolves and it's increasingly more about software and electronics than hardware, you know, go back again to your good old traditional telephone, your good old automobile with very little electronics, or even farming equipment, which up until you know, a generation ago were basically all mechanical, has now turned into uh, very much more technology and software. And that's that's the problem is to ensure we continue to have access in a way that provides all that information, it is now increasingly in the cloud. It's no longer in the vehicle. It's no longer into the farming mm -hmm. equipment. It's in the cloud. And so you need legislation that ensures that you have that direct access to the uh, onboard information of that good, being an automobile or or a computer or, or what's not, right. and continue to be able to do so in a way that uh, provides for that you know, cost-effective, um, timely, and safe repair. And so I think those are the fundamental. It, it's create a legislation that ensures a consumer right to choose, forces automakers to make that information available, um, and has some form of enforcement mechanism that uh, if in fact a manufacturer is not compliant, uh, there's you know there there's recourse uh, that ensure uh, that uh, absolutely uh, what you don't get with a voluntary it, it voluntarily works if all parties are acting in good faith together. Uh, That's I absolutely agree with you. Absolutely agree with you on that. Now, to kick back a little bit, um, the OEs will say to you, um, yes, they recognize things have gone into the digital age. It's not like the old days where you could just tamper with something with a screwdriver or a, a tool. You actually have to go into the computer database. They claim that they're worried about there's proprietary software that could be hijacked and they need to protect their, their patents. Absolutely. Respond to that. Well, in fact, this is one of the uh, representations were made by uh, automakers uh, recently uh, around Bill C-244. So you don't know. There's a lot of pieces of legislation already in front of Parliament that are moving in that direction of a legislative right to repair. That particular bill explores specifically the Copyright Act. Because today in this country, um, if you're going to break uh, a Technological Protection Measure, TPM, that's the, the acronym, if you break TPM, typically uh, you could be found to be um, breaking the copyright of someone who wrote software uh, into a product. And the new lobbying proposal says, no, no, you're going to be allowed to break those TPM if it is for the purpose of repairing and servicing a product, in our case, an automobile. And so what we're saying is this is not about reverse engineering a product for the purpose of building a competing you know, product or another automobile or serve, you know, axing uh, specific, you know, uh, IP, intellectual properties from the automakers. It's not. It's about servicing and repairing uh, a product or good that has been purchased 
uh, by a consumer or a corporation. And so that the counter argument is no, this is not about, you know, right. reverse engineering a product for, uh, for, for, you know, taking, you know, uh, away t trade secret. It is purposely for the purpose of fixing, repairing, calibrating, reprogramming a vehicle. Absolutely. Now this has real implication for the growth of the EV market. Uh, it's just a fact now, uh, I mean, the processing power now that it takes just to, for, for the EVs and most of it is controlling in the, the, the battery. Uh, I think it's something like 3000 microprocessors in a Tesla compared to what it used to be like 300 or even less 10, 10 years ago. Uh, so it's just the nature of the beast now that things have moved online yeah, into the software. If EVs are going to grow, it's going to have to include everybody. It can't be just for those exclusive that can have their cars serviced at a dealership. Uh, it needs to be inclusive of all of industry and all of people as well. So I think consumers really have to know how important right to repair is to the whole EV growth. Do you want to comment a little bit about that? And what would be your message to government uh, as they're drafting right to repair? So the message is clear that we need to be cautious about, you know, uh, making sure that all these vehicles gets repaired um, at the place of your choice. And what I mean by that, and as you pointed out, you know, dealerships may have limited capacity. In fact, one of the claims that we often put forward is there isn't enough service base in the existing dealership networks to service all the vehicles. Well, our first counterpoint is, well, guess what? Many of the new emerging uh, automakers, EVs, uh, don't use a traditional dealership network model. So even further enhance the need to be able to access, you know, a wider range of service bays. If you want to accelerate the adoption of EVs, and I guess that's the word to government, if you want to accelerate the, the adoption of EVs, you need to overcome some of these challenges. And one of which is to ensure there's enough service bays to repair those vehicles. But again, these service bays, if they choose to make the investment in training, technologies, uh, tools, should be allowed to access this information uh, that's needed. Not necessarily an automaker is now going to pick and choose the various partners that they're going to dictate how you're going to fix the cars. So it needs to go further than just saying the automakers needs to provide enough service base. They need to make an a, a ecosystem that provides for uh, a healthy competition, a competitive marketplace where any independent shop making the investment in the right tools and training and equipment is able to repair the cars. And that's the kind of legislation you need if you want to you know, achieve uh, the goals that governments have set for the um, uh, deployment of EVs. I absolutely agree with you. Um, it really has to uh, hit home that if we're going to achieve a circular economy, especially these EVs, the, the, the EVs and the batteries themselves have to be sustainable. Uh, they have to have an application for remanufacturing, reuse, and even the dismantling and recycling. So the right to repair extends to all those industries. Yeah. And that's an important case, a case to make, Ken, is, you know, the aftermarket has shown to be very resilient and innovative in creating ways to extend the lifespan of the product we use. In the automotive sector, we know Canadians have chosen to keep their cars longer, and we have at the aftermarket being able to design replacement parts that in fact outlive the original parts, come with different process to repair vehicles. We already know there are people in the aftermarket that are able to go at the cell level into a battery pack and able to extend the life of these battery packs 
as opposed to simply replacing the entire battery pack, as you know, uh, residual value of the vehicle you know, usually tied into that. And so uh, we need to enable that competitive marketplace that, that you know, creates innovation on the part of aftermarket player to create these solutions so Canadians will be able to keep the cars longer, have a better life cycle for those components, um, and to your point, be a better contributor to the overall circular economy that ultimately is really what we're trying to achieve with EVs uh, that I'm not sure we're going to be able to achieve uh, without you know robust uh, right to repair. There are real challenges with that. And, and interesting about the battery, uh, it, it, it comes about 45% of the value of, of that EV. Um, and we want to sustain the life of that vehicle for as long as possible. Uh, but we've heard the horror stories of getting the $20,000 bill for the, for the battery. Um, there are options, um, and those industries need to thrive. You know, we have recent examples of, of, and we've known it in our experience, that some vehicle you know, uh, lasts long. Uh, all of the original parts works great, fantastic, uh, great for consumers. In some cases, you see early failures of parts, you know, XYZ brand of vehicle, after X amount of thousands of kilometers, typically we always see the failure of the same part. And the aftermarket is playing a critical role to be able to create replacement parts that allows you to keep those vehicles going. And that we need to have this part of the equation for EVs for sure. Uh, absolutely. Now, the AI has run a, uh, a campaign. Uh, I think it's aimed both at industry, but primarily at consumers, which is say, your car, your data, your choice. That's right. Um, what have we learned from that campaign, and uh, what was the uptake of that? Well, first of all, uh, to your point, this was a campaign both to mobilize the industry and consumers to the issue of a right to repair. The Your Car, You Did All Your Choice campaign was actually an initiative from sister associations in the U.S., uh, namely Auto Care Association and AASA, the uh, Aftermarket Supplier Association. And so we created this North American campaign uh, to really focus the attention of government on the need to legislate on the right to repair. Um, we had a, um, a petition that was launched. Uh, we collected over 45,000 signatures from Canadians and really draw the attention of, of Minister Champagne. Now, unfortunately, the timing of our campaign wasn't great. It just came at the end of the previous federal government. And so the bill that was tabled uh, in the House that we thought at the time would be the best vehicle to push for right to repair, uh, died uh, because of the um, the government going an election. But we have since come back uh, with the new government and continue to uh, advocate. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, C-244 is in the House and we believe will become law. And there's other bills also. Um, I will add to that. Uh, likewise, our American partners have done great, great uh, movement. There's already a bill that was adopted as a resolution of a, a referendum in uh, Massachusetts in uh, 2020. But there's also now the Repair Act that is in Congress at the federal level, which specifically, again, uh, builds on the case of consumer right to choose and maintaining a competitive marketplace. And that has bipartisan support. Now, uh, you know, U.S. politics is complicated. I'm not sure how far along they're going to go, but it's sure you know, drawing a lot of attractions right now. And likewise, here in Canada, getting more and more att attentions from the federal government. Yeah, that is, it's, it's setting a precedent and setting models of which we could learn from it as well. Because we definitely, this is an issue that we need to tackle. That's right. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot at stake there. Um, I want to turn a little bit to the training. Uh, the AIA has been involved with 
Um, I think you're involved with ICAR, but you've also taken on some EV training with some of the tech colleges. That's right. Uh, could you explain a little bit about what you've done in that? Sure. Uh, we have been, as you pointed out, um, the exclusive distributor of ICAR training in the Canadian marketplace, uh, I'm going to say 12 years now, don't quote me, but about 12 years. And we've seen the rapid growth of that training for the upskilling of technicians uh, in the collision sector. Um, uh, the car is, is rapidly changing and obviously uh, more so on the collision sector, we repair brand new vehicle, as we know, aftermarket mechanical and maintenance repair typically lag a little behind because we typically don't fix uh, many cars that are still under warranty. But uh, iCar has been, you know, uh, fast growth and we'll continue to partner with iCar USA to deliver this program. And we've also led all of the translation of that content for the French speaking community uh, in Quebec. We've also partnered with the government of Ontario uh, through what they call the Skills Development Fund, SDF. Uh, the Ontario government has been very focused on bringing the skills to Ontarians to retackle the technologies of tomorrow and training for EVs is a natural fit. Uh, and so we're just finishing up uh, one uh, project uh, with the government of Ontario in partnership with St. Lawrence College in Cornwall, Ontario. And uh, we're working with the government now. There's another round of funding with SDF. We hope to be able to secure additional funding to continue to expand that EV training to other colleges as well. Right. Now, is this EV training just for the collision sector? Is it also for the mechanical repair? Actually, it's for mechanical repair. Mechanical repair okay. and maintenance. Yes, it's not aimed towards collision. It's specifically for mechanical repair. Right. It industry has a lot of work uh, in the training front. Uh, I mean, the right to repair is the big issue. You need the data. You need the information. We also need the qualified people uh, in, in order to interpret that data and to repair the, these vehicles. Absolutely. Um, there is a real growing skills gap um, as technology is really, I mean, it's, it's going at a, a very rapid pace. Uh, and it's going alongside the traditional ICE vehicles are repairing there. And then we have this whole new stream now of technology. Um, in, in BC, uh, we are finally implementing a, a mandatory skilled trades. BC is one of the very few provinces where actually anyone can be a mechanic. A lot of people are surprised with that. That's changing. Um, but it's still focused on the ICE vehicle and they're treating the EVs now as somewhat of a, we'll call a micro credential. Um, how do we address moving forward? And you could comment about how the Ontario skilled trades model is working. Uh, because as this stream is growing and growing, um, is it going to be combined into one or do we have specializations? How is this all going to work out? Time will tell. Um, you know, industries are very resilient uh, in the structure and the organization of the work. We don't like to create new uh, career path or, or change the structure. You know, it's, it's, it's very disruptive to employers, employees. Uh, I won't mention unions that sometimes plays in that dynamics as well. But I really think we're going to see a, a much needed requirement around recalibrating a bit what we define as a mechanic, you know, uh, someone who does diagnostic, you know, something that does, you know, advanced EV. Because um, as the technology takes hold, we're going to start to realize it's, it takes very different kind of skill set. And maybe, in fact, someone that always sits behind a computer that is as important to the process of repair than someone who's physically, you know, um, uh, touching the EV. 
will have very different requirements. Uh, and I think one role will become as important as the other. And it's that through that evolution that we're going to start to see a reshaping of all of these uh, job description and their uh, career, which quite frankly, will probably make our sector eventually even more attractive to the younger generation. I'm always amazed, um, or a little disappointed, I guess, that we're not being as effective as we could in attracting the new generations. Because I think about computers, I think about technology. Uh, we're the fastest you know, uh, uh, growing in terms of impact of technology. Um, about construction trade or plumbing or electrician, I don't know if that, there's that much evolution we see in our own sector, yet we still to be perceived a bit as, a, as an old kind of, you know, greasy type of, uh, type of work where, you know, increasingly it's not. So there's going to be a reshaping of these jobs uh, for sure. And um, in the case of what we did in Ontario, it was very focused on EVs. Um, mm -hmm. And so uh, I think it's an evolution of that that's going to lead to uh, something different than what we see today. It, it is. We really need to also redefine what it means to be qualified. Um, and the reason I say that is because as technology is advancing, uh, workers need to keep up. Um, so in the BC model, uh, they're basically working towards a model where um, you get your certification, you're good for life. Uh, but we know that's probably not going to be the best model and we're looking at, uh, say, more leading more into towards professional development, just like we see with other professions. Every year, you need a certain upgrade. And I see that as a more sort of sensible model for for moving forward. And then I, I think, in terms of your right of uh, of attracting younger people, um, I wonder is the traditional apprentice model even going to work in the future? Maybe we need to start exploring other models. What, what, uh, uh, if if you know much about the Ontario model, how how does that basically right. work? How is it currently structured? So you know, if you think about you know, uh, you mentioned apprenticeship, um, and if you think of, you know, I've, European countries, I've, I've had a I think a better success in building um, an apprenticeship system that's attractive to student, is attractive to parents, is attractive to guidance counselor, and I think this is where we failed is we have not made trade uh, uh, the right path for children or, or you, know, the, you know, the perception is that it's not the right path. And so, uh, you know, we have, you know, up until recently, we had the OCAT, the Ontario Colleges of Trades, who was regulated, you know, a series of um, apprenticeship program. And, you know, with OCAT closing the doors a pandemic ago, we lose track of time. Um, that transition is not only is clear for the future either. Um, there's going to be back to what I was saying earlier, a need to requalify the type of skills needed to fix the cars and introduce to your point, the continuing education process necessary to ensure you keep up because um, the vehicle, the technologies that someone you know going to school today, the technology in the service does not exist yet. You know, if you think about, you know, servicing a vehicle 10 years from now, um, you and I could fantasize about what a technology is going to look like, but it probably does not, you know, in the most part, does not exist today. So you've got to provide a path for not only just the recognitions of uh, uh, skills, but then the continuing education path that's necessary to ensure people stay up to speed. And um, I often talk about cybersecurity. Um, I don't think we are 
fully comprehending the, the necessity to be a lot more knowledgeable around all the issues of cybersecurity. Right to repair it today's battle, uh, and, and it probably ties along with EV, cybersecurity will be our next battle uh, because how we're going to ensure who's accessing the information using what tool in a cybersecure process that guarantees that the vehicle, in fact, remains safe after the programming and we're able to go back in the future and edit and audit all that information also. So, so you're sort of talking in cases where perhaps the vehicle has been written off, it goes to an insurance company, but a lot of your data is still within that car. That's one example, but there's going to be even more example of, you know, putting flash of new firmware, uh, uh, making some new calibrations in the system, you know, ensuring that the right information is entered uh, and keeping an audit trail of that. As their vehicle becomes increasingly more autonomous, our capacity to save lives on roads will depend on those systems that are going to be built into those cars. And if we can guarantee the safety of these systems, I don't let anyone want to get into a car that is going to autonomously drive me from point A to point B. Um, and I, I've, I've heard some, yeah, no, I've heard some wild theories that maybe they're not so wild, maybe they're really possible about actually people being able to hack into vehicles now. There's been so, demonstrations, yeah. There, there's been real life demonstration uh, there's a large community that connects all of the automakers uh, to share common threats. And, you know, if you're keeping abreast of all of the, the hacking and the um, stealing of information from various group, uh, I can tell you that uh, hackers of the future will find very valuable information uh, in vehicles in the future. And ensuring all the cybersecurity will be uh, very interesting to, to see how that's going to evolve. But we'll definitely uh, eventually land in the hand of that technician who for any repair or service or diagnostic will need to physically communicate with the onboard computer uh, in the future for sure. Yeah, it, it, it really ramps up the deed for that qualified professional to service your vehicle uh, because the implications of that are pretty scary. I mean, especially with the batteries, what we know of health and safety, um, you've got to be very qualified if you're going to repair or tamper that, but even more so with the automation. Uh, you want whoever is repairing that vehicle aid to have access to the right data, very important, uh, but but the know-how you don't want it in the hands of, well, a backyarder. That's right. And, and um, to that point, um, will there, and, and with, with all respect to all the constituents that operates in the aftermarket today, there might come a time where we're going to have to decide, um, draw that line in the sand and saying, Here's the minimal requirement. Here's the minimal threshold of entry of qualifications, skills, tools, training, credentials that will qualify an individual to could you be able to serve his vehicle. And if, if you don't meet that threshold, I, I think there'll, there'll have to be barriers in place to prevent these individuals to uh, be able to service and repair vehicles because it'll come down to safety uh, of the vehicle, but also the trust that consumer place into repairers, automakers, OEMs, the entire ecosystem. And, you know, I'll, I'll come back to the right to repair. Um, automakers will say, now I'm forced by legislations to make this an you know, open competitive marketplace, but I need to ensure the safety of the consumer. And we need to be able to say, we care about the safety of consumers too. And we'll ensure that the people in the aftermarket have what it needs to make sure they all are going to maintain that safety.
I think that's an extremely important point. I also think it, it helps to reshape the image of the industry. We were talking uh, a moment ago just about attracting younger people in. So we have to make the industry attractive in itself. And one thing that the EVs can lead into um, is a refocus on things like the environment or environmental stewardship. It can be really repackaged as a green job as well. And I think that could have a lot of appeal to, to the younger generation. I, we're going to see uh, absolutely on the green side. I think you know the younger generation is much more uh, um, sensitive to the issues of the environment. They're also a generation that's growing. You know, uh, they're they're growing. You know, as gamers, and we are going to build increasingly more tools that are based on augmented reality, virtual reality. It's going to be a pretty cool you know thing to do to to be able to calibrate and fix cars. I recently had demonstrations where I was able to be. Uh, taught how to paint a vehicle in a pure, you know, virtual reality environment, augmented reality. Those are phenomenal new tools being developed that are, should be very attractive for the young generation. Uh, and, you know, add to it the whole level of automations from EVs. Uh, I think we're gonna, this will be fun. It, it is. When we go to our career fairs through the uh, BC Auto Careers, we have one of those uh, virtual reality paint kits and the, and the kids, they just love it. This is like playing a video game for them. Absolutely. Um, so we, I think we've got a long ways to go as, as well in the industry itself, I think, being more inclusive, uh, especially with attracting more women uh, into this industry. Uh, now, I think, at least in BC, women in the skilled trades area uh, make up of less than 4%. Um, they're very overrepresented in the administrative roles and the business and the finance section, but less than 4%. But compare that to some other trades, the electrical, uh, the electrician trade, uh, women make up 30%. And then in the construction, they're up to about 17 to 20%, yet we're still lagging below 4%, at least here in BC. Um, what do you think industry needs to do or can do to create a better environment uh, where maybe women feel more welcome uh, or want, or want to uh, choose automotive as a career? That's a great question. Um, you know, we conducted a program or project called Awake uh, in, in uh, working with a Status of Women Canada, and that goes back 2015, if uh, my memory serves me well. And our findings were not the greatest, you know, uh, finding to share with our stakeholders. Uh, we don't make a very um, good environment that's conducive for women to participate in our industry. Um, we have been very much a, a male-dominated industry that have not made that move forward uh, to make a working environment uh, uh, better and welcoming. You know, it goes. It starts from leadership. Uh, it starts from supervisors. Uh, it starts from how you design your job description, health and safety. It make positive changes that really changes the mindset in the environment in which you know women and I would say you know also underrepresented uh, group can in fact feel safe uh, and welcome. And I'll, I'll start by safe because some of the findings were simply this is not about an industry that's not welcoming. This is an environment that is unsafe for women to work in. Um, the sector council that I participated in Quebec had some horrendous statistic that says basically that for every 10 women entering the, the trade, you know, it was hard pressed to find one remaining and you know, within a couple of years, they all left. 
Um, and, you know, it, it went down to, in some cases to straight, you know, harassment in a workplace. Those cannot be tolerated. Uh, it starts from leadership. And if you're a, a shop owner or you're a multi-store operator today, you got to make a strong statement without, you know, through your enterprise that any of these uh, uh, behaviors cannot be tolerated. And guess what? I, I know we're in shortage of labor today. But if your best tech, who's been with you with 20 years, makes it a toxic environment for women to participate in your shop, you're going to have a tough decision, but the right decision to make is to let go of that individual. Because if you don't make the example, we're going to continue to have an industry that continues to shrink simply because we're not welcoming to what is now the majority of the workforce. If you think about you know, a visible minority and women, uh, that's where the pool of the future workers of industries are in. And so that's, that's what we need to do. Right, it's, it's definitely the, and I think the environment just will will change as as we transition into electric and 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 autonomous vehicles. Uh, you know, the old image of you know the greasy wrench kind yeah. of that that will really just dissipate. It's also the new occupations that we touched on earlier. Um, well, I think be more welcoming of women. Um, it's just more natural. Look, women tend to be more about people and relationship, and men are more about things and stuff. Uh, but I think that's going to really change especially the way uh, in the service delivery. I've heard some analogies that the the modern service station will be more akin to the Apple store, you know, where you have the Apple genius and someone comes out. I, I see a lot more of that. Uh, so we, we definitely do have a lot of work to do on that front. Um, but, uh, but I think, I think we will get there. Yeah. Uh, I'm really hopeful. I've, and I've seen, I've seen a lot of, of leaders that are taking those proactive actions. Um, but, um, I, I, I proud myself always, uh, I look at the board of directors of AIA. That's sort of that cross section of the industry. Uh, we all have good presence of women, some diversity, and we're, we're really pushing forward to really make that example for the industry that uh, it cannot continue to be just you know a white male uh, dominant type of industries. And and I take every event I go to, and I encourage everyone to do so. You know, stop at one point in that event, that conference, that trade show. Stop. Stand up. Look around. If all you're seeing around you, you know, you are are white male, you know, over the age of fifty five, this is not the place of the future. Uh, you you need to influx some of that change. We do, and we just need some good, really good role models. Uh, I think to represent that. Um, with consumers, uh, and I know AI also published the uh, Consumer Trends Report along with your Outlook study. Um. What do you think consumer attitudes are in general towards EVs? Uh, do you think most people are very welcoming uh, of that uh, and them, themselves uh, are looking to transition the future? Do you see a growing skepticism with the whole rollout? What, what are you sort of seeing as far as that goes? Great question. Um, I, I should start by saying that we're going to continue to uh, run our uh, regular uh, research on consumer behavior. The 2023 uh, will have a specific focus on EV. We believe that we'll have now a sizable number of respondents will say, I have purchased an EV, and then really ask them, you know, follow-up questions about what their experiences are. Um, I'll give a personal guess, is that as the um, penetrations of EV continues, beyond just the novelty and the luxury vehicle. Because let's face it, 
uh, the first, you know, P, the, the first innovators to take on EVs were, you know, buying Teslas as a second vehicle, uh, was able to charge it at home, and, you know, whenever it was convenient would use it. But now as we get into more of your, this is my primary vehicle, uh, I live in an urban area, we're starting to see some of the challenges around charging infrastructure. Um, and obviously, we're going to start to see also some of the challenges around repair. We now start to hear more and more of those stories about, well, I need to get my Tesla repaired and I got to wait four weeks. Um, and the cost of repair is very high. And so people start to realize some of the challenges. And back to what I said earlier in the message to government, if we're going to achieve the numbers and the objective that the government have set for the um, penetrations of EVs, we're going to have to overcome some big challenges around charging infrastructure, but also about the serviceability, access to you know safe uh, and cost-effective repair uh, as well for that. And I would say that, yeah, probably what I expect from our research is that we're going to start to see some of that trend a bit. Yeah, about the EV, but, you know, um, range is not where I thought it was going to be. Uh, charging is a bit more difficult because where there used to be two charging uh, posts, well, sometimes it both are news and I have to wait. So those are challenges I start to, I think, surface a bit. Uh, this is becoming very important. Uh, with the federal government, at least, uh, it has been all emphasis on new, new sales. And I get that. That's their mandate. Um, and they're thinking about the mining. They're thinking about the resource extraction. So they're at these polar ends, not thinking about anything in between. Uh, uh, the BC government has listened to us. Uh, and they've they've sponsored the EV friendly program and and other great initiatives here in in BC. So I think the rest of Canada should follow the the, the, the BC lead for 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 sure. Um, one thing about the the industry is, and I think which is going to be critical for EV growth, is inclusion of everybody. The the industries are the 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 tow operator the the mechanic the collision tech the recycler they're ambassadors for this or they can be ambassadors uh, so you need their buy-in and their commitment and their investment as well uh, so I, I think that we have a long ways to go just in our education but i think the government can also play a very critical role in supporting that infrastructure what are your thoughts yeah absolutely um well i'm pleased to say we recently joined a um industry stakeholder a consultation group, a zero emission vehicle uh, that is led by uh, Transport Canada. Uh, it includes, I'm pretty sure it was represented from uh, British Columbia uh, government, uh, Ontario, Quebec is represented. Um, trade groups like uh, AI represent the aftermarket. I am pretty sure recyclers at the table as well. And so are other industry groups, automakers, parts manufacturers, and so on. And it's to get a better, I would call a stakeholder engagement in conversations about the type of programs the government has to put in place uh, to accelerate the adoptions of EV. So I'm, like you, Ken, very much hopeful uh, that we're going to start to see those sort of more end-to-end approach. Uh, Minister Champagne, by the way, I'm not related to Minister Champagne, unfortunately, but uh, uh, we found out that both and I are, have a bit of a, the same accent and we're both uh, born in the same year, but it pretty much stops there. But Minister Champion always says, you know, it's it's mining to recycling that we need to have an approach in Canada. Lots of focus on mining right now. And I, I get that AI, uh, that, uh, sorry, Canada wants to be uh, a, a place where automakers wants to come and build manufacturing plan. And this is all important. But to your point, there are missing pieces along the way. Um, we're just starting to think about recycling, quite frankly, which I've thought 
this conversation with before. And, and the right to repair is is something we we work on all you know every day uh, in terms of the servicing and the diagnostic and the repair of vehicles. So uh, hopeful, but lots lots of work to do. Yeah. So some final thoughts here. Um, how prepared do you think really government is for meeting the targets, not only the twenty thirty five, but just the net zero targets by by twenty fifty? Uh, and if you had one little bit of advice that you could give the federal government or even the Ontario provincial government, what, what would that be? Very simple. Uh, if you want to hit your target, uh, you want to make sure that consumers will be able to repair their EVs uh, in a cost-effective fashion, uh, timely, uh, at the nearby you know repair shop that's convenient at the right price. And if you don't have legislation in place, uh, to protect the consumer right to choose and maintain a competitive marketplace, this will not happen. And so you need okay. right to repair legislation. Yeah. So anyone listening to this podcast, whether they be industry or consumers, uh, where can they get more information ab- about the right to repair if, if this has piqued their interest? Sure. Where can they? Righttorepair.ca. All one word, righttorepair.ca uh, is a website that we host uh, you could uh, register for a newsletter, get more information, and uh, get informed uh, about what uh, we're doing at AIA for uh, ensuring consumer right to choose. Absolutely. Uh, and it is about being informed. It is an important issue that I think everyone needs to take heed with it. Uh, so we are going to be seeing you uh, on Thursday at the EV Roundtable. That's what looking uh, looking forward to that. Looking forward to see you as well uh, in person, Ken. And uh, again, thank you very much for the invitation to join you today. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to like and share, add a comment, and subscribe to our channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you don't have time to watch a full video podcast, check out EV Friendly on the Go, available on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Thank you.